Blog Talk Radio. Stay tuned, folks. The conference to establish new security and development architecture for all nations will begin shortly. Uh, please uh, stay tuned, and we'll get you to it. Thank you. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening, depending on where you are joining us from throughout the planet. We want to welcome you today for today's International Schiller Institute Conference to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations. We're very happy that you can join us today. We will begin today's proceedings with remarks from the late economist and statesman, Lyndon LaRouche, known throughout the world for his unique ability to speak to all people about those values and ideas that unite us all. This is from a speech that he gave in 2003 to a conference in New York City devoted to world education with a specific emphasis on Pakistan. If you look around the world today, you have two pictures. One, a fearful one. Threat of war, threat of war, terror. On the other hand, in Asia in particular, Eurasia in general, there's a new movement, new cooperation among the nations of Asia, steps toward cooperation, Pakistan, India, China, Southeast Asia, Iran, nations of Central Asia, Russia, moving toward Europe. The world is in a great crisis, great economic crisis. The financial system is in danger of collapse and will collapse, but we can fix that. Governments have the power to fix those kinds of problems, and life will go on. The problem is, above all, is the mind of the people of the world. And is the case of Pakistan, as you have emphasized with your program, the support of education program. The problem is, look at the faces of the poor of the world. Not only Pakistan, but the poor of India, the poor of Southeast Asia. And you look in the eyes of poverty or poverty in Africa, what do you see? You see a mind which is a human mind, which is capable of doing everything every other human mind can do in general. But you see that the lack of education, the lack of hope, the lack of connection is like a prison. It's not only a prison in denying them the knowledge they need to have the skills to produce, but it's a, it's, it's a psychological prison, a spiritual prison. They don't know the world in which they live. The world in which they live in the large is a stranger. It's a frightening stranger. And so therefore, when it comes to the kind of project with which you are concerned here tonight, the project of education for the poor, especially of Pakistan, who otherwise would not have the education that you're working to provide for them. We think that the spiritual goal is almost as important or maybe more important than the economic goal. I know that in the period of World War II, when the United States had gone through a great period of pessimism in the 1920s, early 1930s, we began to come out of that pessimism during the period of the 1930s and the war. We were able to meet the challenge of war and the challenge of the hope of peace, which Roosevelt represented, because there was optimism in the people. I saw things happen in wartime 
under wartime conditions, which expressed pessim optimism, optimism. People would do what they thought was impossible because they were optimistic. And the function, I think, of education, especially the education in poor countries, is to give the child the basis for belief in optimism, for the belief that we can do things, that the belief that by cooperating, we can make things different, we can change things for the better. And that's what I look for. I'm privileged now because of my work internationally in dealing with countries in South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, Europe, elsewhere. I see that there's a great the possibility of optimism. But then I see when I look at the poor countries, such as Pakistan and India, which have many poor, even though many are not poor, but many poor, I think what will happen to the effort to build peace in this part of the world if we leave the mass of the population, the majority of the population, ignorant and poor with a sense of hopelessness that can become a disease that can destroy all our wonderful aspirations. So I must say in briefly that to be as brief as possible, I can say much more about many things and maybe you would like to ask me about some of these things later tonight. Uh, that this is a very worthy cause. It's a small part of what is needed. But sometimes we set an example by a small effort and hope that others will be inspired by what is accomplished by the small effort and hope that therefore that example will inspire others to do more. If you are just joining us and wherever you happen to be joining us from, we want to welcome you today for the International Schiller Institute Conference to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations. To begin today's plenary session presentations, it is my honor to introduce the founder and leader of the Schiller Institute, Helga Sepp LaRouche. Dear conference participants from all over the world, what brings us here together today with participants from over 60 countries, from four continents, is our utmost distress that the very existence of humanity is in grave danger. The aim of our conference is to arouse the awareness of ever larger social forces around the world that because of the danger of the presently escalating strategic confrontation, there could be soon a full military engagement between NATO and Russia, leading to a world war, which in all likelihood would mean the annihilation of mankind in a following nuclear winter. The aim of our conference is therefore to demonstrate in the most powerful way that there exists an immediately accessible alternative, a paradigm which can leave that mortal threat behind us and begin a new era of human history in cohesion with the true nature of mankind as the only species known so far capable of reason. That danger of a large war did not start on February 24th of this year. As my late husband, Lynne LaRouche, forecasted with prescience in August 1971, after Nixon replaced the fixed exchange rates of the Bretton Woods system 
with floating exchange rates, that a continuation of this monetarist policy, unless corrected, would lead inevitably to a new fascism and a new world war. And that is 50 years later, exactly where we are right now. The acute danger of war, the larger war, comes from the fact that the transatlantic neoliberal financial system was already at the advanced stage of breakdown of a hyperinflational explosion of a hopelessly bankrupt system before the war in Ukraine started. In order to understand the real reasons for the Ukraine crisis, one has to go back to the reasons why the great historic chance which existed after the disintegration of the Soviet Union for the establishment of a true peace order, as we proposed with the program of the Eurasian Land Bridge then, was missed. A good entry point, a window to get an insight, is a document that was originally leaked to the New York Times by a whistleblower in March 1992, which became known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which was written in the spirit of the earlier project of a new American century. It stated that part of the American mission would be to ensure its role as the only superpower in the post-Soviet world, which would have sufficient military might to deter any nation or group of nations from challenging America's primacy. On March 8th, in 92, the New York Times wrote, the Pentagon documents the clearest rejection to date of collective internationalism the strategy that emerged from World War II when the five victorious powers sought to form a United Nations that could mediate disputes and police outbreaks of violence. The Wolfowitz Doctrine was the real reason why the promise given to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch to the east by Secretary of State James Baker at three different occasions in February 1990, was not kept. The Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz Doctrine, based on the Anglo-American special relationship, was the basic axiom for a whole array of policies to follow, starting with the so-called shock therapy of the IMF-backed liberal reforms in Russia in the 90s, which in light of the wealth of raw materials and scientific expertise of Russia was aimed explicitly to eliminate a potential future competitor on the world market and which reduced the industrial capacity of Russia from 91 to 94 to only 30%. It was the basis for the various interventionist wars in Iraq, the bombing against Yugoslavia, wars against Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, as well as the five NATO expansions to the east. Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference in 2007 was a traumatic protest against the enactment of the unipolar world, which remained essentially as unanswered as the various definitions of red lines concerning the core security interests of Russia, up to the recent one to the United States and NATO on December 17th, articulated by Putin. The conflict between the claim to maintain essentially an unipolar world and the emergence of a multipolar world, which was the natural result of the economic rise of China, the attraction of the BRI for 100 countries, 
the strategic partnership between Russia and China, and more recently, the refusal of many countries such as India, Pakistan, Brazil, South Africa, and others to be drawn into the geopolitical confrontation between the West and Russia and China. That conflict is at the core of the present danger. It is terrible that we have a war in the middle of Europe. But so were the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Yemen, etc. But they almost did not exist in the news. And did anybody think the Russian military could have come to another conclusion when they saw the pounding of ever harsher sanctions, the acting out of various rent think tank scenarios, and the choruses of Western politicians about crushing the Russian economy, crushing Putin, crushing the Russian system, the largest nuclear power on the planet. And now, after the negotiations between Rus Russian and Ukrainian delegations in Turkey had reached a first hopeful step, pictures of the atrocities of war, without even a minute of presumption of innocence until proven guilty in respect to the authorship, served to apply further sanctions, an expulsion of diplomats, the open threat of bankrupting Russia. The policy is openly aimed at regime change in an effort to make not only Putin, but also all of Russia a pariah among nations for the indefinite future, exclude her from the UN Security Council, even the United Nations and the G20, which will destroy these institutions. It will cause the complete political and economic decoupling between the West and Russia and China. This policy already has and is doing devastating damage to the physical economy worldwide, the so-called supply chains, and it is catapulting the potential victims of a world famine to one billion people that is one-eighth of the entire human species. There are already hunger protests in many countries in the Middle East Africa, Latin America. Meanwhile, the inflation in prices for food, energy, raw materials threatens to halve the industrial production in many countries. Mass unemployment looms and a total collapse into chaos. The new system is already emerging, centered on China and the BRI, Russia, India, and others. There are many new strategic alignments occurring, the SCO, the BRICS, the OIC, China relations, the many relations among the global south. But even a conception of a multipolar world does not solve the problem because it simply implies the danger of, it still implies the danger of a geopolitical confrontation. We need a dramatic sudden change in the way we organize our affairs. It has to start with an honest, explicit insight that a continuation of the present policies risk a conflict where there would be no winner and therefore a new peace conference is needed in the tradition of the Peace of Westphalia. The recognition only option left was to have peace negotiations dawned on the warrior parties after 150 years of religious war in Europe of which the 30 years war was only the culmination, since they realized that nobody would live, be left alive to enjoy the victory if the war would continue. Today, 
we are in a nuclear war, many cities would be dead within hours and the rest of humanity would suffer ailing in a nuclear contaminated world until either all life ends or the few unhappy survivors would contemplate why mankind was not able to prevent its own destruction. Therefore, there must be an immediate convening of an emergency conference in the spirit of the Peace of Westphalia, where for the sake of peace, all crimes committed by one side or the other must be forgiven and forgotten. And for the sake of peace, all policy must take into account the interest of the other. There must be the intention to create a new international security and development architecture, which takes into account the security interest of every single country on the planet. There must be an immediate ceasefire and a new credit system must be created to replace the bankrupt financial system as the real cause for the war danger. It must be based on the principles of the original Bretton Woods system as it was intended by FDR, but due to his early death, never was implemented. These principles, which Lyndon LaRouche outlined in a draft memorandum of agreement between the United States and the USSR, published March 30, 1984, after the Soviet Union had rejected the offer by President Reagan to cooperate in making nuclear weapons obsolete by technological means are still absolutely valid today. In this memorandum, it says, Article 1, General Conditions for Peace. The political foundation for durable peace must be the unconditional sovereignty of each and all nation states and be cooperation among sovereign nation states to the effect of promoting unlimited opportunities to participate in the benefit of technological progress to the mutual benefit of each and all. The most crucial feature of the present implementation of such a policy of durable peace is a profound change in the monetary, economic, and political relation between the dominant powers and those relatively subordinated nations often classed as, quote, developing nations. Unless the inequities lingering in the aftermath of modern colonialism are progressively remedied, there can be no durable peace on this planet. Insofar as the United States and the Soviet Union today, the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China, acknowledge the progress of the productive powers of labor throughout the planet to be in the vital strategic interest of each and all, these powers are bound to that degree in that way by a common interest. This is the kernel of the political and economic policies of practice indispensable to the fostering of durable peace between these powers. The commitment to engage in a global poverty eradication program, such as it is outlined, for example, in the report by the Schiller Institute, the new Silk Road becomes the world land bridge for the proposal of China for a co cooperation between the Belt and Road Initiative, the Belt Back Better program of the United States, and the Global Gateway program of the EU can become the actual development underpinning for such a global security architecture. Ukraine 
rather than being the cannon fodder in a geopolitical confrontation, can be the bridge between Europe and the other Eurasian nations. In light of the present and the danger of future pandemics, there must be the construction of a modern health system in every country. In light of the famine threatening the life of one billion people and the expected population growth, governments must take emergency actions to double the food production to ensure a healthy diet for all human beings. International law, as it was developed out of the peace of Westphalia and was established in the UN Charter, must be reinstituted without any limitations. The five principles of peaceful coexistence be the guidelines for the cooperation among all nations. The present existential crisis has demonstrated that mankind has one common future or none, and that we must put in the interest of the one humanity before all national interest. And that from now on, every national interest must be in cohesion with the interest of humanity as a whole. It is an expression of the richness of our human civilization that it has generated different cultures. We must advance the dialogue of the best tradition of these cultures, the most beautiful creations in science and art, as the demonstration of the unique creativity of man, and in that way, create a new renaissance, which will start a new era of mankind. We will replace hatred and prejudice against other cultures, which only exists if we don't know them, with a tender love for all of humanity, because it is the most precious good in the known universe. Thank you, Helga. If you're just joining us, we want to welcome you to today's International Schiller Institute Conference to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations. And we have just heard the keynote address by Helga Sepp-Lagruch, The Need for a New Paradigm. We are especially happy to have with us today His Excellency Ambassador Anatoly Antonov, Ambassador of the Russian Federation to the United States. His topic is Prospects for Building a New International Security Architecture. Dear friends, I would like to thank the Schiller Institute and its chairwoman, Ms. Helga Zeplahush, for the opportunity to share my view on the prospects for establishing a new security architecture. Over the past 100 years, the system of regional and global security has been retailed three times. Following World War I, the victorious countries shaped a European order, but it lasted only 20 years. World War II gave rise to the establishment of a system of international relations that reflected the balance of power and was based on the maximum consideration of national interests. Perhaps the founding of the UN with the fundamental role of the Security Council and relates on the international war were its core elements that united all nations. Nevertheless, the Cold War divided the world. A psychological, ideological, economic war was waged against the Soviet Union. We were branded as an evil empire and the source of constant global tension. The task pursued by the West was to stifle the development of the Soviet Union 
prevent the transfer of advanced technologies to us and do our country to be a second tier nation. The third attempt to form a world order was made after the dissolution of the USSR. The United States and its allies declared themselves the Cold War's winners and began to reshuffle international relations to suit exclusively their interests. In fact, it was the very moment when the basis for the unfamous rules-based order was laid. In the new environment, an increasingly diminishing role was given to the UN and other international institutions unless they were controlled by Washington. But even in such a reality, the new Russia made an attempt to meet the West highway. We were excessively open and credulous. We proposed new cooperation and interaction projects. We demonstrated our readiness to compromise, making unforgivable concessions in some cases. The West cynically took advantage of such constructive approach. It hypocritically tried to point out that from the, that point on Russia's place was on the outskirts of the new world order. The worst effect disappeared, but NATO was not uh, going to disband. Moreover, over recent years, the world was witnessed five ways of the alliance expansion. Its military machine is in fact on our doorstep. Lately, NATO's military activity has considerably intensified. About 40 major military exercises are held annually near Russian border. The forces of the North Atlantic Alliance are exploring the Black and Baltic Seas. By the way, according to the latest estimates of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, the combined military expenditures of NATO countries exceed Russia's defenses budget by at least 25 times. For decades now, the West has been cooled with the dismantling of the collective security system developed after World War II. We have lost key global security agreements, the ABM Treaty, Vienna Treaty, and the Open Skies Treaty. In fact, the only agreement left today is New Star that continues to meet the national interests of Russia and the United States. It is the gold standard for strategic stability which must be preserved. The Russian side finds totally unacceptable the efforts of many countries to militarily explore the territories of Ukraine and Georgia and establish a network of American biological laboratories along our borders. The situation has become extremely dangerous. We have repeatedly said that any system of European security must take into account the national interests of all states, including, of course, Russia. Our country cannot be an object of some phantom defense projects. We must be an equal party of Europe and global security with full voting status. Russia has never insisted on any unilateral advantages. All we have demanded was respect and recognition of Russia's national interests. At the end of the last year, our country put forward concrete proposals to rectify the unfair world order. Our ideas were summarized in two draft treaties with the United States and NATO. In essence, we proposed a peaceful initiative offering our vision of security architecture. 
those drugs were made public. They covered such matters as non-enlargement of NATO, non-deployment of weapons system causing a threat to the Russian Federation near our borders, a moratorium on INF fielding, as well as specific initiatives to increase the predictability and reduce dangerous military activities. However, our key proposals were rejected. Politicians who try to reduce the whole issue to the crisis in Ukraine are ignoring its origins and driving the discussions to a dead end. They look at the situation superficially disregarding the root cause of the events. According to this logic, Russia, along with the United States and the UK, can be blamed for the occupation in 1945 of Nazi Germany that did so much evil and inflicted so many sufferings on the entire world. The Soviet Union alone lost 27 million people in that war. Today, it's extremely important to achieve the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine to consolidate his nuclear-free status and its commitment to international agreements on the non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. We must do everything to prevent the undermining of the MPT. There should be no threats to the Russian Federation coming from the Ukrainian territory. This is the objective of our special military operation. It is extremely important that Western countries stop adding fuel to the fire by pumping Kiev's regime with weapons. Moreover, there is an obvious need for the United States and their allies to urge Ukraine to respect international humanitarian law. We will never tolerate the shootings of civilians as well as the killing and torturing of captured Russian soldiers. I would like to stress the need to immediately put an end to the spreading of fake news that discredits the great mission of the Russian military. A blatant example is the slander against us regarding the situation in Bucha. Stage scenes that distort the truth must be unacceptable. Our country advocates for urgent actions on the international arena. The principle of equal and indivisible security must be restored. It means that no state has a right to strengthen its security at the expense of the security of others. With political will, this can be easily achieved through the development of serious long-term legal guarantees. We insist on the need to strengthen international war and reinforce the role of the United Nations and its key body, the Security Council. The Russian proposals do not infringe on the security of the native countries. On the contrary, they create conditions for de-escalation in Europe, a restoration of trust and intensification of interaction in order to address global challenges, such as the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic, non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and means of their delivery, rebuilding of national economies and settlement of serious climate issues. To conclude, I would like to recall the ideas of an American statesman, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. In his book, Diplomacy, he predicted the failure of the so-called Wilsonian foreign policy model of spreading democracy. Let me quote. However powerful America is, no country has the capacity to impose all its preferences on the rest of mankind. America will have to learn to operate in a balance of power system. 
Kissinger also said, Russia-American relations desperately need a serious dialogue on foreign policy issues based on mutual respect of each other national interests. Dear friends, let me assure you that our country is always open to interaction of this kind. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Ambassador Antonov. And if you've just joined us, you are watching and participating in the International Schiller Institute Conference to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations. Our next speaker and a prime moving force in the work to organize today's conference is Sam Petroda, former cabinet minister and advisor to Rajiv Gandhi and several other prime ministers of India. His topic, the need to redesign the world. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, greetings from Chicago. War in Ukraine, like any other war, is of great concern to humanity. It is of concern to all of us because it makes our fellow human beings miserable due to deaths, destructions, displacement, poverty, hunger, hate, false propaganda. There is no reason for a war in 2022. Nothing can justify all the destruction that is going on. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here basically to talk about a need to redesign the world. Today's security order is based on command and control, as opposed to collaboration, cooperation, co-creation, and communication. Today's world order is also based on total commitment to power and profits, as opposed to what is good for planet and what is good for people. I wrote a book on redesign the world, mainly because I believe that in a hyper-connected world of today and tomorrow, when all 8 billion people are essentially connected, we need a new paradigm. What does it mean to have connected? How do we use this connectivity to take human civilization to the next level? World was last designed after World War II, which gave birth to UN, World Bank, IMF, NATO, WTO, and WHO, and many organizations. It also gave birth to GDP, GNP, per capita income, balance of payment, and various measurements. This design did pretty well in growth, prosperity, rebuilding Europe, rebuilding Japan, but at the same time, this design has not solved the problems related to poverty, hunger, violence, war. This design was based on democracy, human rights, capitalism, consumption, and military. Right after the design, world got decolonized. No one ever thought that world will be decolonized in such a short period of time. No one thought China would be able to rise the way China has been able to rise. Soviet Union fell apart without a drop of blood 
and then for a while world became unipolar. In the process, technology became pervasive, inequality increased, and then 9-11 changed everything. Finally, COVID-19 reminds us that we are all interconnected, interwoven, interdependent, interrelated. What matters at the end of the day relates to only two things, planet and people. We have really created huge blunders with our environment, global warming, and we have not taken care of our people. What we really need now is a whole new paradigm. We need to take our democracies or whatever form of governments we have to inclusion. We need to provide dignity to people, respect to all other human beings. And we can't go on attacking people where innocent people get killed, mainly because there is a power struggle at the top. We need to really focus on human needs. Human rights are not good enough. We live in an environment that we can produce anything. Unfortunately, we still think of economy of scarcity when we have economy of surplus. What are we fighting about? There is enough for everybody and some more because technology has offered us unique opportunity in production, management, distribution, delivery, markets, trade, but we have to think differently. Many times I say that we have 19th century mindset, 20th century processes, and 21st century needs. Capitalism hasn't delivered fruits to everybody. It has increased inequality where very few people have lots of wealth and lots of people don't have anything. We need new economy, decentralization, bottom-up development, networking of companies, and we need to focus on localization while we still promote globalization. There is a lot of wisdom in local talent, local resources, local soil, and we need to take advantage of that. We can't go to globalization just because we can optimize profits. GDP may not be the right way to look at economy. We need gross environmental product, gross human development product, and the whole idea of consumption has gone too far. We wind up producing for people who can afford to buy and not for people who need it. We need focus on sustainability. We need focus on conservation. And finally, I come from the Mahatma Gandhi's roots. I believe firmly in non-violence. In this world, there is no room for violence. And violence begins at home, on the streets, in the cities. And our response to violence is to provide more hardware, more military equipment. Today, we produce $2 billion worth of military hardware. We spend $2 trillion. When we know $200 billion can eliminate hunger in the world, I think it is about time to begin to focus on nonviolence everywhere. But what do we do with this? Idea. So the idea is to take democracy to inclusion, human rights to human needs, 
capitalism to new economy, consumption to conservation and sustainability, and military to nonviolence. How do we do this? Because those who have desire to change have no power. And those who have power are already milking the system and they have no interest in changing. So we really need to begin new conversation. We need to begin conversation at the bottom of the economic pyramid. We need change agents. We need new institutions. And we need to break some of the existing institutions. I believe some institutions have outlived their utility. In the last 75 years, we have not created one new major global institution like UN, World Bank, IMF. I think it is about time to think of the redesign of the world. And that redesign must have at the center of the design. We need to constantly ask if it is good for planet, we should do it. If it is good for human beings, we should do it. Unfortunately, today, our design, as I said earlier, is focused on power and profits. Until that mindset changes from command and control to coordination, cooperation, networking, co-creation, we will not create new paradigm for the mankind. I firmly believe that hyperconnectivity, which democratizes information, decentralizes decision making, demonetizes services with content, contact, duration, communication is a unique opportunity for mankind with innovations, creativity to take humanity to the next level. I believe in the redesign. I'm not here to really emphasize anything else, but I'm convinced that we all need to join hands to create new world order. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. You are watching and participating in the International Schiller Institute Conference to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations. Our next presenter is Mr. Jay Naidu of South Africa. He is a former cabinet minister under President Nelson Mandela, and he's speaking to us today on the African perspective. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much, and uh, I, I, I present to you today an African citizen's perspective. Alongside most African citizens, I am deeply concerned about the human suffering in Ukraine and call for the war to end, for Russia to withdraw its armed forces, and for the humanitarian crisis to be urgently addressed. I urge that NATO and Russia sit around a negotiation table and uh, that a lasting peace settlement to be reached that embraces a new, secure, and envisioned peace between Eastern and Western Europe. The world does not need another world war or even the doomsday scenario of a nuclear winter. The UN Charter commits all of us to find a peaceful means to settle our differences and ensure that sovereignty and integrity of all states needs to be upheld. I have played a role as a freedom fighter 
against apartheid. I've been a member of President Nelson Mandela's cabinet. I reiterate that the only way we can rise above our differences and our constituencies and find common ground is through peaceful negotiations. Will we find the courage to see and understand each other and manage both transition and diversity in our world? Africa has no intention of becoming again the theater of proxy wars in geopolitical conflicts between global powers. Humanity is facing an intersect of global crises that create a perfect storm for an extinction event. Science overwhelmingly confirms we are living through a dire ecological emergency with rising pandemics, inequality, hunger, and poverty. The world cannot afford a nuclear war another arms race, or even conventional warfare. And yet, that's exactly what is happening. No one wants another Cold War. In Africa, we've paid heavily in the massive loss of lives, the destruction of infrastructure, and even our social fabric. In 1990, we welcomed the ending of the Cold War and the dream of a nuclear arms-free world. South Africa historically dismantled its nuclear arms program and argued alongside its African peers for a new world order based on peace, on multilateral cooperation and a new global security architecture based on sustainable development. Our shared imperative is for a permanent and transformative global peace. Imagine a world that had embraced a proposal made by Gorbachev in 1986 when he announced a Soviet proposal for a ban on all nuclear weapons by 2000. Or if the vision of Olaf Palm, then Swedish Prime Minister, had been achieved what he echoed on all our behalf that a nuclear war can hit all people and all states, even those that are further the theater of war. But this also means that all people and all nations have a right to have a say about these weapons of mass destruction. We have wasted an important moment to secure global peace, arms reduction. The momentum be behind the end of nuclear weapons was lost as agreements fell by the wayside, and three decades later, we face a crisis of a new arms race. The Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons is the only commitment in a with a multilateral goal of nuclear disarmament enforced in 1970 that needs to be reactivated, and a comprehensive framework put into place democratically that represents the will of all of humanity. In the crude binaries of global geopolitical temper, African citizens have chosen to stand above these narratives. Africa has historically been part of a non-aligned movement. Our continent is already burning through conflicts waged in the resource wars that afflict us, driven by predatory interests of global multinationals that seek to recolonize our continent 
and impose a yet another brutally exploitative model of violent extraction. Africa has its challenges related to eradicating our continent as an epicenter of hunger. We want our sovereignty respected. We cannot divert our scarce resources to a heightened global arms race. In a world where we seek to build a functioning and responsible global governance, we need to reimagine a very different world to the one that we faced in 89, 1990, or even post the Second World War. The Security Council of the UN is an anachronism of a world long gone, constrained by the divisions between its five permanent veto-wielding members, the US, Russia, France, and China, with each prioritizing its own interests and influence. We argue for a new security architecture that reflects the will and aspirations of more than major global powers. Africa, with its 54 countries and 1.4 billion citizens, cannot be excluded from meaningful participation in decision-making. African citizens want to be part of a global movement that bridges the old divides of East and West, a continent with mineral and natural resources that fuel a global economy and the youngest profile of demographics in the world wants a new economic and political deal that seeks to build a transformative peace. We don't need any global power acting as our policemen. We strive to rise above the paradigm of war driven by imperial and colonial thinking. Centrally, the goal we seek to tackle is the climate crisis head-on, building a circular green economy that embraces sustainable human development and renewable energy. Our hope is that Africa will have its voice heard, not just of our governments, but also the debate on a new inclusive and developmental architecture must include the voices of citizens, civic groups, students, women, youth, and a broad range of grassroots organizations and coalitions. We contend with a chemistry of circumstances and crises that we can galvanize a new beginning of what makes us human, what defines a positive passage for our evolutionary journey to a better humanity, away from war, economic and political aggression, and militarism towards a new transformative global peace. As our president, Nelson Mandela, wisely said, it always seems impossible until it's done. Pray and hope along the majority of African citizens that we find the political world today to find that piece of Mandela within ourselves, to manifest a greater humanity that we are capable of achieving. I thank you. And we thank you for those very important words. You've just heard from Mr. Jay Naidu of South Africa, who spoke to us on an African citizen's perspective. Welcome to all from all around the world that are attending this conference today. From China, we will now hear from Chen Xiaohan of the Chinese People's Association for Peace and Disarmament, speaking on a shared future for mankind. Dear President Helga, Zeth Dahush, 
firms. First of all, I'd like to present warm compliments to you all. It is my pleasure to attend this international conference hosted by International Senior Institute. The world today is undergoing major changes and great pandemic both unseen in the scenery. With intense and complicated major power revivaly and escalated regional hotspot issues, the world has entered a period of new turbulence and transformation and the international order is facing severe challenges. Against this backdrop, it is of great significance for President Helga and Senior Institute to initiate its conference. I believe today's conference will be very productive and successful to review international situation and explore ideas to build together a better world for all. At the moment, I'd like to avail myself of this opportunity to pay tribute to President Helg and the Senior Institute who have been making endeavors to promote cultural exchange, mutual understanding among different peoples, as well as common development of the world over decades. Speaking of international situation, the crisis in Ukraine, which impacts the world, in, is indeed deeply distressing and more importantly, and has propounded us to, to re reflect profoundly. I recall clearly that some Western strategists, including George Kennan, Henry Kissinger, and Jan Mearsheim, all sounded an alarm for the crisis years ago. Yet the situation still comes to what we have seen today. The lesson is painful and profound. At the root cause lies in regional security, contradictions fermented over decades. A fundamental solution is to accommodate the legitimate security concerns of all relevant parties. China supports Europe to play a leading role and support Europe, Russia, the US, and NATO to hold dialogue, facing up to the tensions that have piled up over the years and some solutions so as to build a balanced, effective, and sustainable security framework in Europe. As a permanent member of the UN Security Council, and a responsible major country, China will continue to make its voice heard, put forward initiatives and take actions to stop all and promote peace and anti-Semitic guard regional and world peace stability. Dear friends, facing emerging global challenges, human society is once again standing at a critical historical juncture answering the questions well, what's wrong with the world and what should we do she offered china's proposition build community with a shared future for mankind encourage all countries rise above the different differences in social system history and culture and work together to build an open classic clean and beautiful world that enjoys lasting peace 
universal security, and common prosperity. First, we should stay committed to building a world of lasting peace through dialogue and consultation. We should jointly safeguard global peace and security, abandon all forms of Cold War mentality and hegemonism. Countries should coordinate with each other equally and resolve disputes based on mutual respect so as to foster a new type of international relations based on dialogue, non-confrontation, and non-alliance. Second, we should build a world of common security for all through joint efforts. We should follow common and cooperative security instead of unilateral and absolute security. The security of one country cannot be compromised compromise as the extent of the security of others and regional security cannot be guaranteed by strengthening military blocks. We should guard against any attempts of a new coal and create, create a security architecture featuring fairness, justice, joint efforts, and shared benefits. Third, we should build a world of common prosperity through winning cooperation. We should promote open and inclusive development. Sanction and economic globalization should not be used as weapons. Countries should work together and strengthen policy coordination to avoid protectionism. We should uphold an open, inclusive, and balanced world economy to bring benefits to all. Both, we should build an open and inclusive world through exchanges and mutual learning. We should promote the common values of peace, development, fairness, justice, democracy, and freedom. Not allow one civilization to prevail over another. People should, from different civilizations, social systems, and development paths should draw on each other to achieve common progress. Fifth, we should make our world clean and beautiful by pursuing green and low carbon development. We should jointly deal with environment challenges by pursuing balanced and sustainable development. Countries should follow the principle of common but differentiated responsibility take the opportunity of working together to fight against the pandemic and advocate green and low carbon production and lifestyle so as to advance the UN 2030 agenda for a sustainable, sustainable development. Dear friends, as President Xi Jinping pointed out, pointed out, in the midst of a global crisis, countries are not on more than 190 small boats, but on one big boat with a shared future. Only when nations pull together, not against each other, and encourage each other, not blame each other, can we overcome the challenges of today and move toward a brighter future. In the face of the wild or, or, natu uh, or 
or let's tie international situation, China pursue a new vision of common, comprehensive, cooperative, and sustainable security, adheres to the political system of regional hotspots issues and plays a constructive role in maintaining international peace and security. In the face of a sluggish recovery of the world economy, China pursues the concept of common development and promotes high-quality cooperation of the belt and the road construction, which is green, open, clean, high standard, sustainable, and beneficial to the people. In the face of complex governance difficulties, China has actively participated in the building of global systems for climate, environment, health, and digital governance, pushed for globalization to be more open and win-win for all, and firmly upheld the international system with international nations and international order based on international law. In the face of the impact of COVID-19 on the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, China has put forward a global development initiative calling on all countries to take action and inject new impetus into the implementation of the 2030 Agenda. Dear friends, as China all thing goes, a public spirit will rule, rule all under the heaven when the great all prevails. When spring comes, vegetation grows and spreads, and the mountain scenery in spring will be enjoyed. Peace and development are same of our times and irrestainable trend of history as well. In the face of common challenges facing mankind, countries should strengthen solidarity instead of its fragment, promote cooperation instead of provoking conflicts, and join hands to build community with a shared future for mankind. We should make positive contributions to the political settlement of international and regional issues and the maintenance of world peace and stability. Once again, I want to thank President Helga and the firms from the Sina Institute for inviting me to attend this conference. It is significant and pertinent to provision to seek for common development of human beings and build a community with a shared future for mankind at this critical moment. Wish conference a complete success. Thank you. And thank you. We have just heard from Chen Xiaohan, representing the Chinese People's Association for Peace and Disarmament, speaking on a shared future for mankind. Our next presenter is Alessia Ruggieri, proud trade unionist and spokeswoman of the Comitato Pela Repubblica. The topic is for a Europe of the fatherlands with the peace of Westphalia. Right now, the world is suffering from a bad lack of democracy, trust and increasing confusion. Citizens no longer recognize themselves 
in political institutions and there is no longer trust between states themselves. In an increasingly connected world, we witness increasingly commenting societies and the erosion of democracy in the West. As an Italian, I experience the nightmare of being subjected to political choices that I believe are detrimental to the security of my country and the achievement of the peace we all desire. I have witnessed appeals for peace, addresses to Russia by her political leaders, while they were at the same time sending weapons to Ukraine. Even among the humanitarian aid and the airport of Pisa, they have discovered clandestine weapons and the airport trade union refused to load them on the plans. Invoking peace while at the same time sending weapons is like trying to put out a fire by throwing gasoline on it. The Draghi government has decided to allocate 2% of GDP for the purchase of weapons and to align itself totally with the EU, EU choices. This, this is why in Europe country companies are closing down and for years there has been no investment in research in schools, in hospitals, and the real economy. As a trade unionist, I represent thousands of small entrepreneurs throughout the country who had to close their business. And while the Italian parliament approves the sending of weapons to Ukraine, which violates our constitution, the large majority of Italians as shown by Paul, are against rearmament and hope instead for an economic policy that will promote employment. It is necessary to make a distinction between the real economy and the financial one. The financial one represents the speculative bubble that moves the great ones of the heart and that has nothing to do with the citizens. The real one is us, the enterprises that are the backbone of the economy. As for the foreign policy of our government, and unfortunately also of the other European governments, it seems that everyone has forgotten the promise made by the NATO member states the fall of the Berlin Wall to then Soviet leader Gorbachev, in which they undertook not to expand heaven and each further east than Germany. We had to even witness that the leaders of the NATO member countries rapidly denied this agreement and were obviously refused after that. Also, the trilateral agreement of Minsk was deliberately not respected 
and buried before Putin reconciled the two separate mm -hmm. republics. I have to simply witness the following statement of an Italian daily. Ukraine-Russia war, when killing Putin, is the only solution. I did not to see any statement of outrage for this call to assassinate Putin, and not even for the massacre in Odessa in which 48 people were born to death, including a pregnant woman. I will comment with great enthusiasm the call of the Schiller Institute to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations, inspired by the Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Westphalia put an end to 30 years of bloody warfare between Catholics and Protestants. In a delicate moment, it is necessary to take as reference the model of the Europe of the Fatherland of the goal and the peace of Westphalia. Mm -hmm. Someone called the general a saboteur, attributing to him the will to hinder those who working for European integration. On the contrary, the goal was a convinced Europhile, but he rejected the creation of supranational structure that would lead to federalism. In fact, Today, we can say that the European Union has deprived over time each member state of its sovereignty. The Europe of the Fatherlands wanting to be a force that stood autonomously between the United States and the Soviet Union and not a Europe resulting from the progressive loss of sovereignty of the states. In short, a Europe independent from the Atlantic and the Soviet blocs, able to take decisions independently. On this day, I want to remember two Italians, the mayor of Florence Lapira and Pope John XXIII, when in the 60s they helped to create a bridge between East and West to preserve peace and evoking that spirit and the encyclical passion in Paris. I address myself as this, the pontiff to all men of goodwill, invoking a world of peace without blocks, A Europe of the fatherland with the peace of Westphalia is not a utopia, but a project that should inspire anyone who truly wants peace. I would like to thank once again the sheer woman of the Schiller Institute, Elga Zeplarouche. Thank you, Alessia. It was Alessia Ruggieri of the Comitato per la Repubblica. We're now going to go to our uh, discussion period. Uh, Ambassador P.S. Raghavan of India uh, is unable to be with us uh, for our session. Uh, and so what we're going to do is to bring everyone up uh, for the discussion, and what we're going to do is uh, just go in the very same order that uh, people spoke and ask for your comments on all that you have heard or anything that you'd like to raise. So, Helga, we'd like to begin with you first. 
I first want to thank all the speakers on this panel and the fact that we all come from different parts of the planet and bring our different cultural traditions and experiences. I think this is a very encouraging sign because I think, you know, the, what unites us all is the recognition that mankind has reached a point where we do need a change in the policies and that together we have to search for the principles which make it possible to arrive at that new paradigm. And, you know, for me, this is starting with the image of men uh, because, you know, once you agree on what you would call in religious terms, the sacredness of human life, and for those who are not religious, you can call it the inviolability of the human life. Because what makes men unique is, you know, the ability, and I think Sam Petroda alluded to it, the ability of men uh, to develop new science and technology. And this is what constitutes humanity as the only creative species which we know of. There may be other species, you know, when we explore the universe, but right now it's the only species we know. And it is that recognition of the creative nature of the human being which gives us hope that we can find a solution. And, you know, the great um, philosopher of the 15th century, Nikolaus of Kusa, who is known in Russia as Nikola Kosansky, he established this idea of the coincidence of opposites, that there is a solution for every problem because the one has a higher order than the many. And that is also the principle of the peace of Australia, that the one humanity is of a higher order than all particular you know, national interests or other interests. So I would like to thank again the participants in this panel and uh, would like to you know, give the word to all of you. Thank you, Helga. Thank you, Helga. Ambassador Antonov, very happy to see you at this very intense period, as you know. Please, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. You see that uh, I don't consider that I waste my time on Saturday. It's a great pleasure for me to be with my friends, with the new uh, faces whom I uh, don't know. Uh, and uh, I would like to confirm my uh, thanks uh, to Schiller Institute and Helga Zeflarouche uh, for this opportunity to share my view on a very important and pressing issue that we have discussed today. Uh, it's uh, very interesting to listen participants from four continents. I see uh, uh, one denominator that everybody is concerned by current situation. Nobody is satisfied what is going on and we see so many problems we can solve. And it's very important that today I come to conclusion that nobody outside can give us any solution. Neither United States nor Russia. You see that we are just a member of international community and it's very important for us to sit together and to discuss all outstanding issues. But I would like to confirm an importance 
to be uh, importance uh, to for um, NGO to be involved in this process. I'm sure that without your assistance, it will be very difficult to find a compromise uh, which uh, fits uh, uh, everybody. So uh, again, I would like uh, to confirm my readiness to uh, participate uh, in any of your events, and it will be a great honor for me to welcome you uh, in our embassy if and when you find an opportunity to come to Washington. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I wish well, thank uh, good luck you. everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Mr. Petroda. Thank you. I first want to compliment Helga for her leadership in putting this conference together. I think we should see this as a beginning of a new process and not just one event. I am convinced that war must stop destroying properties, killing of people is not the answer. We must get at the table to solve the problem, to save lives, and bring peace to the area, not only in Europe, but in other parts of the world as well. I believe the key is to focus on redesigning the world. It is not a piece of conversation. We got to get it done. And it has to move away from power and profit to planet and people. Environmental blunders get less attention today than we need. We also need to get off this command and control architecture. Take advantage of hyperconnectivity and begin new conversation with focus on collaboration, cooperation, co-creation. There is enough for everybody in this world. Why do we need to fight? Can we take humanity to the next level by focusing on hyperconnectivity to create new order? And that's what I would like to see. I'm 80 year old, and I know I have very little time. And I also know that very few people would listen to someone like me. Because there is a golden rule in this world, one who has gold makes the rule. And that has to change. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Mr. Jay Naidu. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to Helga and uh, the Skiller Institute to convening this this conversation. You know, I take uh, I take heed of the fact that we are all conscious of the multiple crises we are facing in the world. You know, a billion people will go to bed hungry today. You know, there are countries across Africa and the world, including in Middle East, where millions of people are are starving. Have been living in countries embroiled in civil war, often stoked by interests that come from beyond their countries. We are living in a situation where we've recreated the scenario of the Second World War with practically you know, 60 million people either refugees or displaced because of internal conflicts, because of interstate conflicts, and and that's something we should leave behind, you know, 
as, as Mahatma Gandhi said, there's more than enough in this world to meet all our needs, but not enough to meet our greed. So we do need a new architecture, not just of security, but a new architecture of, of development, of understanding that as a humanity, we have no dominion over this world. We live by the grace and the blessings of Mother Earth. Therefore, we need to respect her and put the environment at the center of all our debates and our discussions, whether that's political, economic, social, because I come from a point of view, which is most people in the world, that everything is sacred. All life is sacred. One life is not more important than another life. One part of our, our world is not more important than another part of the world, and therefore I reiterate and I endorse the fact that what Sam and many of you have said, to move from a situation of power, of greed, of arrogance, to a situation where we regard ourselves as part of an international community, as part of nature, not a part from her, where we live in, in harmony, where we live with tolerance, and where we deal with the devastating impact of war on our country. And you know, I really would like to appeal that we're not constructing one big forum. In fact, the approach to global peace, a transformative peace, is building a network of networks where everyone has a right to have a say, including Mother Earth, that there are such things as the rights of our planet cannot construct a world any longer where the only rights that are respected are the rights of human beings. So I embrace the idea that there needs to be a bottom-up process that, that galvanizes the seven and a half mil, billion people in our, in our world towards a new narrative where there is no master, where there is no policeman, where there is no attempt of domination by one over the other. And coming out of South Africa, which has been a pariah for many, many, many hundreds of years, I would argue that the time for the evolution of a consciousness, of a, of a new civilization that recognizes the importance of all, and that as Africa, we want to come out of the shadow of the past 500 years of slavery, of colonization, and of a brutal nation, and take our rightful place in the community of nations. We are the cradle of humanity. We have many things to say as the people that, and the continent that produced the earliest tools that led us to where we are. Music, education, language, agriculture. So we think that we need to create the opportunity in a context where young people do not trust political institutions. They do not even trust government or big business or even established civil society. We are talking about a grassroots conversation that allows the, the burgeoning, the unfurling of a new way in which we learn to live together in love, in tolerance, and in harmony. And and that's the prayer. That's the prayer I have. As a grandfather, as an elder, I recognize what I've gone through, 
and I, alongside people saying the time has come for a new paradigm of development that brings us together as a humanity in relation and in an intelligent co collaboration with all the other species we share Mother Earth with. I thank you. Thank you very much. Alessia, uh, we're coming to you, but I just want to say that we have to do a consecutive translation. So when you speak, uh, we're going to have to hear the translation. So please uh, pause so we can uh, make sure we're following what you're saying. Alessia? Okay. Allora, uh, accolgo, eh, sì. allora, accolgo l'invito um, dell'ambasciatore Antonio Chessimo uh, per raggiungere l'ambasciata in segno di solidarietà da italiana e da europea. Eh, abbiamo avuto noi italiani l'incubo di essere associati ad una politica prima italiana e poi europea che non rispecchia la volontà di noi che siamo il popolo, di noi che siamo, rappresentiamo la classe imprenditoriale italiana. Noi prendiamo le distanze dalle scelte governative e politiche del nostro governo e siamo in tanti. Noi riconosciamo nella Russia un'alleata, un'amica con cui l'Italia ha avuto per diversi anni Can you hear me in English? Yes. All right. Uh, yes. I, I welcome the invitation which Ambassador Antonov made to some of the speakers to uh, come to the Russian Embassy in Washington. And I would like to do that as an Italian and as a European to express my solidarity. Uh, Italy and Europe uh, have, uh, in the recent years, had policies which do not at all reflect the will of the people, and we are taking distance as a trade union, as an entrepreneur from such policies. And in particular, we do recognize that Russia is a friend and an ally for Italy. Sono d'accordo con il mio collega dell'Africa, del Sud Africa, che ogni parte del mondo ha la stessa importanza. Sono le persone che devono essere al centro di questa nuova architettura che deve promuovere oltre alla sicurezza lo sviluppo dei paesi soprattutto del Sudafrica che rappresenta. Ringrazio e uh, aspetta uh, facciamo okay. breve brevissimo se non si annoia. I agree also with the speaker from South Africa that every part of the world and uh, every person has the same importance in new in this new uh, uh, security and development architecture, and that the key question is the development in this case of Africa. Ringrazio Erga Zeppla Russo per questa opportunità da italiana e mi impegno ad essere in Italia non solo parte attiva affinché questa nuova architettura possa nel breve tempo possibile raggiungere il primo obiettivo, che è quello di una serena cooperazione tra gli Stati che vorranno farne parte. I thank Helga Zetlarouche for this opportunity. As an Italian, I will be an active part of the movement 
through a goal to move towards this new architecture. And uh, we, I hope that we can, as soon as possible, reach the third aim of this, uh, uh, of this proposal, which is the cooperation among nations. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, Helga, what I just want to say to everyone, we're, we're getting many questions. Of course, we're going to keep it as a kind of discussion process because there's so many. Although I'll just indicate the character of what we're getting, um, much of which, of course, uh, would, uh, is, is uh, also for uh, our, the ambassador, uh, which is people are asking about this point that was made a few times particularly by uh, Sam Petroda about the post-World War II world, post-Franklin Delano Roosevelt world, we call it in America, uh, and the institutions that were created then but have not been recreated since. There were uh, remarks, reflections about the Bandung Conference of 1955 and its importance and whether there's anything that several of the speakers might have to say about that. And then there's sort of a very specific area of questions which have to do with the lost chance, what Helga has called before the lost chance of 1989, what happened at the time when it looked like, you know, the Cold War was over and there was going to be a collaboration among people. Um, there's a specific uh, uh, idea that was uh, for Ambassador Antonov just as a whole, which is we recall the collaboration of the American and Russian people in defeating Nazism and world fascism during World War II what was called the spirit of the Elba. We recall the joint Apollo-Soyuz space mission in the midst of the Cold War uh, and what steps can be taken to revive that spirit uh, even in the midst of this terrible crisis. So that's the character of what we're getting. So Helga, I'm gonna ask you to first respond first as a whole, and then of course everyone uh, will be able to do the same. I agree with uh, Sam, um, that, you know, and also Alessia, who said it, that we need a movement, uh, that this conference is very important because it brings together uh, people from, you know, maybe five continents, four continents, and many, many people who registered. And I, I know that we have live streams going on of different media um, that there are commitments of people who have promised that they will uh, distribute the proceedings of this conference uh, afterwards to as many people as possible. So I foresee that we will have a process of such building of a movement, which will be extremely important because what we touched upon in these brief uh, presentations, you know, uh, unfortunately, we are in a period where everything will get worse in the short term. Uh, most, in fact, hopefully we can, you know, contribute to bring uh, negotiations back on the table in respect to the Ukraine situation. But, but even beyond that, you know, we are in a breakdown crisis of a financial system. Um, the danger to one billion people is intolerable. I mean, when the pandemic broke out, you know, my immediate response was to say that this must be the beginning of building a world health system, a modern health system in every single country. That has not happened um, because, you know, the institutions which have the power 
um, you know, they did what they did, but they did not go to the roots of the problem, namely that it is the underdevelopment of the developing countries and therefore the lack of a health system which makes pandemics possible. I think China has demonstrated um, very efficiently that once you have a modern health system, you can contain even a pandemic. So the need to build a health system in every country uh, is, is still there. But I think we also have the urgent need to prevent that one billion people is dying of starvation. You know, this is completely intolerable. So I would, you know, hope that out of this conference comes a commitment that, you know, that everything is done to prevent the starvation of, of so many people. Because, you know, that would say something about ourselves, that if we cannot mobilize to save one billion people of 8 billion or less than 8 billion, you know, then we are morally not fit. So I think the idea of the sacredness of every life and that there is no difference between the value of a life, let it be in Europe or in Africa or in China or in the United States or wherever, all lives should be regarded as equally sacred. And therefore, to combat the famine, to combat the pandemic must be the starting point of overcoming the underdevelopment of all. And that is what I think must be an ongoing theme of hopefully a large growing movement of people who demand a new paradigm. Okay, Ambassador Antonov, any thoughts? I have so much thoughts, you see, that I am scared uh, uh, to keep you lifting me for the whole day. Uh, of course, first of all, you see that in one month and a half, all of us, we will celebrate the great victory in Second World War. We will never forget 25th of April, when the Soviets and American soldiers embraced and Albert Arriva. We will never forget how we fought together. You cannot imagine how many lives we lost. As I know that United States uh, lost about uh, half a million. Today I already mentioned that the Soviet Union uh, lost 27 million. Should we give anybody any opportunity to forget about those days, about um, disasters that where we survived together. And uh, it seems to me that uh, we shouldn't give any right to anybody uh, to uh, give another uh, history, how uh, uh, Nazi came into power and how we destroyed Nazi uh, together with the United States, uh, UK and other uh, nations. We have excellent experience after the Second World War, especially in strategic stability area. Uh, we have created so many uh, important uh, legally binding documents that uh, met uh, interests of United States and Russian uh, people. And uh, we already started uh, strategic dialogue with the current administration, but due some uh, problems it is uh, frozen now. Uh, I would like to draw your attention. We have some uh, poor uh, legally binding documents uh, that United States and Russia are in favor, such as NPT, uh, Star Treaty. We shouldn't give uh, any opportunity 
to undercut those treaties. And more important, I am sure that we are doomed uh, with the United States to cooperate on all strategic issues. Just only some of them, fighting against coronavirus, climate change. We have a lot of common regarding activities in Arctic. Cybersecurity, it's a new challenge to the security of the United States and Russia. And we started fruitful uh, dialogue on this uh, issue. I hope that time will come when Russian and American experts will sit together and they will restart uh, fruitful cooperation. Even under such difficult circumstances, we continue space cooperation between the United States and uh, Russia. And I hope that uh, maybe it will be a little breach that will permit us uh, to uh, force our uh, cooperation in the future. Thank you. Yes. Sam? Thank you. No, I am convinced that the problems of the world cannot be solved in the existing global organizational architecture. We have been talking about eliminating hunger for 50 years. World Bank has had many, many programs. We haven't been able to do that. We've been talking about eliminating poverty, improving environment. So look at the track record. And you will realize that very few have become very rich and lots of people have suffered in this world. The inequality has increased in spite of democratization of knowledge and technology becoming pervasive. We need a new architecture. And I think if we have single-minded focus for next five, 10 years, that we want to redesign the world. Nothing short of that will solve the problem. Helga talked about health system. It is part of the problem. Education, food, environment, water. These are all global challenges and it cannot be handled on a piecemeal basis. So if we collectively decide to focus on one basic challenge, and that is to redesign the world's architecture, relook at UN, do we need World Bank? Do we need IMF? What does it mean to have a financial system that we have today? Do we need a new financial system? How do we use hyperconnectivity to change all this? I think we are just underestimating the power of hyperconnectivity, the opportunity to innovate. What is going on in Silicon Valley and other parts of the world in technology is going to have huge impact on humanity. And that requires new organizational architecture. I wrote this book because I felt that without addressing larger issues, Micromanagement is not possible. And I hope we can make this a movement globally to redesign the world. Then something will happen in maybe five, 10 years. Thank you. Thank you. Jay, I think you're uh, muted. Jay, 
Oh, now you're now you're good. I think you're good. Go ahead. For the last two and a half decades, I have collaborated with Sam Petroda. Uh, I was then the Minister of Telecommunications in the Mandela government. And we saw this technological revolution as a tremendous advance towards a new humanity. In fact, it was the leveling of the playing field, the basic need of all other basic needs. We could deliver telemedicine, we could deliver information, we should deliver government services, all seamlessly. And so the internet was one of the greatest uh, discoveries and innovations of humanity. But today, we know this internet is controlled by gigantic companies that have wrenched away our right to access information, to access knowledge, to access the true news, not just fake news. We are now being censored across social media. In, you know, one of the greatest inventions of, of human you know, intelligence has now been captured. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why? You know, many of the institutions that we created after the Second World War was with the intention to stop war, to build global peace, and that global development was the flip side of, con of conflict. So how is it that 70 years later, we have a billion people going to bed hungry, we have close to 60 million people displaced, we have in the, in the COVID pandemic and the way it was managed, it ended up as control and command system, where our rights were taken away from us. And so, you know, the question really one wants to ask is, is what's happened for 70 years, these institutions today do not have the trust of the majority of our people. Institutions at a micro level, in every sector of society, in the global architecture. So they are not fit for purpose. The one thing we know about the technological digital revolution is things are changing at a dramatic pace. The world has changed in the last two years, given how we've approached the issue of a COVID pandemic, how it's entrenched the power, particularly of big, big pharma in our world. And so what we have to talk about is, yes, a redesign of the global architecture for everything. And how do we construct the bridge between the old and the new? What are the principles of that? Where do we look for what we've done in the past? And that's where I, I do want to go back to the issue of the Bandung Conference. Because in 1955, it met to promote a notion of Afro-Asian you know, Afro solidarity, economic and cultural cooperation, the idea that you know, we can create a new world away from colonialism or neo-colonialism. We met again in 2005. But I think today there needs to be a, a new bandung of all of us so that we can all have an input into what is the design, the new world we all want to see. We have all argued in this conference. At the same time, you know, the non-aligned movement was created in, in 1961. The idea that we didn't want to be pulled into proxy wars between global powers. Of course, that non-aligned movement lost its momentum 
in the context of the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union and, and what's happened since then. So in, in, in a sense, I think uh, for countries that uh, do not hold that global power, we do want to see a new and non-aligned movement. We do want an opinion because the majority of people live in countries that have historically been part of the non-aligned movement. And, and lastly, I would say the non-proliferation treaty on nuclear weapons and all the agreements we've had from the time that the Cold War formally ended in 1990 need to be put back on the board and to be put back in the center of our conversation so that we can remove the root causes of why we are at this moment back where we, we hope that we would never be with the threat of conventional war, of a new arms race, of a new, new, of a potential nuclear winter. So I think that, you know, these are the conversations where ultimately, you know, they say democracy is when governments and those in power are afraid of the people. And totalitarianism is where people are afraid of the government. We as the people need to reclaim our power away from politicians many who have been captured by vested interests of a military industrial complex. Thank you. Okay, and Alessia, uh, before, in addition to your general remarks, we have a particular question which I'm going to pose to you, which came from the Italian blog, Database Italia. And they ask you, um, the Schiller Institute promotes an international debate for humanitarian aid, a new peace, security architecture that can replace the failed NATO political and military machine, do you think that we will finally see this new paradigm which can guarantee international aid and a mutual support society? It's a collaboration and mutual development. This is the question of the Italian state. Let's see if you respond. Devi togliere mute. Io credo che la Nato si basi su un paradigma economico, sociale, politico ormai obsoleto. Che un'esigenza. I believe the NATO is based on an economic and social paradigm which is totally obsolete. Vi è un'esigenza fisiologica di una nuova architettura che possa parlare innanzitutto di inclusione e non esclusione, l'inclusione è di un ponte tra i diversi mondi che rappresentiamo noi qui oggi, tra i relatori, di un dialogo che metta al centro le persone, che metta al centro le competenze, per un'architettura che metta al centro gli interessi e la tutela di ogni singola nazione che deciderà di aderire. And uh, there is a physiological need for this new architecture, which is uh, made of inclusion and a bridge between different worlds, as represented by the ones of the speakers today. And then creates, allows a dialogue between competent people instead of people who have uh, brought us to rules. Okay. Concludo dicendo che per quello che riguarda me e la classe imprenditoriale che rappresento, migliaia di imprenditori, faremo di tutto quello che è possibile nelle nostre possibilità a promuovere 
questa nuova architettura e a dare voce anche a quegli italiani e quegli europei che non si riconoscono più nelle politiche comunitarie dell'Unione Europea. And as, uh, in conclusion, uh, as far as I'm concerned, as a uh, trade unionist representing thousands of uh, small uh, entrepreneurs in Italy, I'm committing myself in this conference to do my best to create this new architecture and also to give a voice to those Italians and Europeans who are not represented anymore by the European Union. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, we uh, just have a few moments left, and we're going to ask for each speaker to give a one-minute uh, sort of summary of anything they'd like to say uh, before we conclude, and we're going to do it in reverse order. So we'll start with you, Alessia, uh, and then proceed backwards. Minuto, cominciamo da te, Alessia, per un ordine finale di un minuto. Niente, il mio commento vorrei ribadire la mia riconoscenza ad Elga perché dà voce a tanti italiani che al momento non si sentono rappresentati da nessuno. È chiaro che noi vogliamo la pace. Questa nuova architettura si rifà alla pace di Westfalia che mise fine ad una lotta eh, prima eh, di 30 anni e poi di 80 anni in Europa. Noi vogliamo la pace e vogliamo che ci siano le condizioni per poterla realizzare ovviamente. My final comment is that I, I want to uh, thank Elgazette Lelouch uh, who is courageously giving a voice to all those Europeans and Italians who want peace and they want a peace based on the concept of the peace of Westphalia uh, which put an end to 30 years of war and uh, we want a Europe which is contributing to peace and not to war. Thank you. Jane Naidu. Thank you very much uh, to the Skiller Institute and to Helga and Sam and convening this conference and your moderation. You know, I, I'm reminded that, you know, at uh, what Mandela often said to us, that at the end of every war, you will have to sit around the table and talk about peace. And when he was asked, when he left the prison after 27 years of, uh, of being on Robben Island and Victor Fister, uh, you know, prison, you know, if he had any revenge in his, in his heart. And his reply was very profound. And he said that if I leave this prison with revenge in my heart, then I will still be a prisoner. And so I, I hope that through this conversation that we're having, that we agree that every voice counts and that in the conversations we are having to get us out of this crossroads, because the jury is out on whether we as humanity have earned the right to be on this mother earth, then I hope that every voice will count and we will ask who's not in the room Whose voice are we not hearing? And often we would find it is the voice of ordinary people, of unemployed youth in Africa, of smallholder farmers, farmers at the epicenter of hunger in Africa, which still has two thirds 
of the cultivatable arable land in the world that is now being taken away from us by other governments, other companies from outside of Africa. I hope that we will include young people, that we will include the gay and LGBTQ communities, that will include smaller countries that are facing the crisis of climate change and whether they will continue to exist as small island states, of people that live in areas that are bordering on seas that are below sea level, that we can bring ourselves to a consensus that the most important thing now is not war, it's not another arms race, it's not another nuclear threat against each other, that we can step down from the arrogance of big men, find an intelligent cooperation between the feminine and the masculine, and build a cooperation across these divisions we call states and understand that we are, like someone said, in one boat, not in 190 boats. And I hope that this will be what we take away from this conference. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Sam Petroda. Thank you. I agree with Jay. Jay had said it in a very forceful way. I would like to use this conference to plant seeds to redesign the world. I would like to use this conference not just to have a conversation on NATO, Russia, Ukraine, US, military, security. I want to use this to plant seeds for taking humanity to the next level. And that would require totally new thinking. In, it, in that thinking, people and planet will have to be at the center and hyper-connectivity and technology would offer us the hope and opportunities that mankind never had before. I am very bullish on innovations, creativity possible today to solve the problems of the humanity. I believe we can produce anything today. We need to decide what is that we want to produce and for whom do we want to produce. I believe we can eliminate hunger. I believe we can reduce and completely eliminate poverty. I believe we can attain peace, but that will require completely different mindset. And I'm worried about the mindset of the people. I'm worried about hypocrisy. I'm worried about power-hungry politicians. I'm worried about profit-hungry industrialists, corporations, and I'm worried about the fact that we have lost empathy, values, characters. We want to steal from others. We want to fight to gain more. And we really need a new mindset. We need Gandhian mindset. At the end of the day, truth, trust, Love, inclusion, diversity, environment, respect, dignity, education, health, food matter. How do we get people to focus on 
this as opposed to truth today is converted into lies. Trust is converted into mistrust. Love is converted into hate. We cannot go on like this. We got to redesign the world. And I'm looking to work on this for whatever little time I have left. I'm very bullish. I'm very hopeful. And I hope we can use today's event to plant the right seeds to redesign the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ambassador Antonov. First, uh, thank you very much again for such opportunity to deal with these very important issues. For me, uh, I pay special attention on uh, everybody's uh, statement today because everybody uh, has a right to flag uh, an issue that he is interested uh, in. And of course, uh, I cannot disagree with an idea to uh, do our utmost uh, uh, to take humanity to the next uh, step of development. For me, uh, I see so many issues we have to tackle together, and uh, my dear colleagues have mentioned them. Uh, as an ambassador, of course, I would like to uh, emphasize the necessity for political dialogue between nations. I'm sure that without uh, compromise on this issue, it would be uh, not possible for us to make any step ahead. And, and the end of uh, my remarks today, I would like to draw again and again to the Russian uh, idea that we have to restore principle of indivisible security for uh, everybody. It seems to me that each man and woman has a right to be equally treated as well as each nation, each national interest, uh, interest of uh, any country has to be taken into account. Without such understanding, it will be very difficult to think about uh, a new system of international uh, security. So you see that, uh, again, thank you very much for this opportunity to explain where we are, what kind of problems we uh, face, and I'm ready to cooperate with you with the great interest. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Helga? I think the idea that we need new institutions because the old ones have become either obsolete, like NATO, or the IMF because it did not solve the poverty issue. Uh, I think that that is one outcome of this discussion. Now, uh, we already have the experience of working with the non-aligned movement because my late husband, uh, Lyndon LaRouche, came back from a trip in Iraq in 75 and he recognized that the IMF was obsolete then, and he proposed the International Development Bank, uh, which was the idea to create a credit institution which would facilitate technology transfer to the developing countries on a grand scale. And for one full year, the LaRouche movement of that time, uh, we worked with all the governments of the non-aligned movement, and the IDB was uh, almost uh, word by word in the final resolution of the Colombo Conference of the Non-Aligned Movement in Sri Lanka in 76. So what happened was, you know, that despite the fact that three quarters of the human species had demanded a just new world economic order in this Colombo resolution, 
um, you know, there was an onslaught whereby many of the leaders got either assassinated, like Ali Bhutto, or destabilized, like Mrs. Gandhi and Mrs. Bandaranaike from Sri Lanka. Uh, so, you know, we have a long experience of what you are up against when you are trying to change the world order. But I think right now we are at a new point because there is no way how this international financial system will last very long. We are in a hyperinflationary blowout um, whereby you know you, you will not get this inflation under control and any effort to pump more liquidity, to make more quantitative easing, to pull more trillions into the system. I mean, we have now in the transatlantic system, a situation like what we had in Germany in 1923, when the hyperinflation uh, exploded within a few months and the system came to an end. So that will demand that the question of a new credit system is being put on the agenda. And that must be in a cooperation between governments, because governments finally, you know, have to do it. But it also is a question of you know, individuals of social forces demanding a just world economic order which allows for the development of all people on this planet. So I think the issues, you know, which we touch upon today uh, are becoming very clear. We do need an international security architecture which takes into account the interests of every single country on the planet because there is an indivisible uh, security and we will not have peace if you leave out any part of the world. So this approach will require most of all, not only empathy, uh, Friedrich Schiller, according to whom the Schiller Institute is called, said Empfindungsvermögen, which is sort of a empathy, you know, but love is really the better, the better word. Schiller said the, the development of the Empfindungsvermögen of love of, of compassion is the most important requirement of our time. And I think that that is also, you know, what must come out of it. This is why in the piece of Westphalia, the idea that foreign policy from now on had to be based on love was a very practical issue and not a, not a utopian idea at all. Because if we do not come to the point that we love mankind, we will not solve anything. And Confucius and also Lessing um, said that if you decide to feel love, you can switch your feeling to do that. And this is a subject of a whole other discussion, but you can force yourself to love instead of hate. Because once you relate to the other person that you want the best for the other person, and the other nation, which is the principle of the peace of Westphalia, then it changes your emotions. You, you can switch from hate to love by doing something for the other. And so I think that we are on a good track and um, I think this uh, will have a, a very important function to shape history in the next period. Thank you, Helga. We'd like to thank our panelists, Alessia Ruggieri, Jay Maidu, Sam Petroda, Ambassador Anatoly Antonov. Uh, and we also like to thank uh, uh, a couple of people who were not able to be here for the present for the discussion. Chen Xiaohan of the Chinese People's Association for Peace and Disarmament, 
and Ambassador P.S. Rakhavan. And we, of course, like to thank Helga Zepp-Lavrouche for putting this together. We'd like to thank all of you for participating. And we're now going to conclude this section of our conference and go to panel two, which will be moderated by the Vice Chairman of the Schiller Institute, Harley Schlanger. Hello there, Harley. Hi, Dennis. Thank you. Let me welcome people to the second panel of the Schiller Institute Conference on establishing a new security and financial architecture for all nations. In this panel, we're going to take up the urgent need for a new economic financial platform to replace the present neoliberal global system. Long before the present crisis in Ukraine, the system was undergoing a protracted and accelerating collapse, resulting from the policies imposed by the beneficiaries of this order. In this panel, we'll look at what must be done to move from this collapsing system to establish economic relations based on cooperation between sovereign nation states. Now, after the presentations, we, we hope to have an opportunity for questions. I would urge all speakers to keep to your allocated time of about 10 minutes to allow time for an open discussion. We're gonna begin with Dennis Small, who is the Bureau American editor of the Executive Intelligence Review and the lead author of the Schiller Institute policy paper, The LaRouche Plan for a New International Economic Architecture. And Dennis's presentation will be titled, The New Architecture, a program to prevent the starvation of one billion people due to the sanctions. Dennis? Thanks, Harley. I'm very glad to be here today among this distinguished group of international thoughtful actors or active thinkers who are gathered to come up with solutions to the world problems. And the problems are great indeed. I'm reminded of what Ramsey Clark once said about what made Lyndon LaRouche so dangerous to his enemies in the international financial establishment is that his organization was a fertile engine of ideas. And it is again today exactly that which makes us so much of a threat to the existing financial establishment centered in London uh, with an important branch in Wall Street. And it is now urgent that we rev up those engines to deal with a crisis of a magnitude that we haven't seen since the 14th century Black Death, if then. We're looking down the barrel of the gun of world famine, for example, which, whereas just a few months ago, the estimates were 235, 250 million people would be dying of starvation over the course of this year. Now the best estimates, and they are unfortunately accurate, are that as many as 1 billion people could well die of famine this year. That's one eighth of the human population. The situation in uh, particular countries, especially in the Middle East and North Africa, are bad because of their extreme dependence on imports. By cutting off Russian uh, and Ukrainian exports, the Russians through these super sanctions which been, have been applied, um, the two countries together have one third of all of the wheat that's traded on the world markets. And again, that hits Africa and the Middle East in particular uh, all the harder. The situation of energy is even worse. Uh, that hits Europe particularly hard. Europe is totally dependent on Russian exports of oil and gas. Uh, Germany, uh, the most industrialized of the nations of Europe, gets 24% of its entire energy 
supply from Russian gas and oil, as you can see on the graphic on your screen. Uh, but this is not just hitting uh, Africa. It's not just hitting Germany. These super sanctions coming on top of an ongoing collapse of the entire global financial system is hitting the entire world. What we're now dealing with, as you can see by looking at Moon Rouge's uh, famous triple curve function, which gives an idea of the relationship of the growth of financial speculative assets and the physical economic collapse underneath that, you can see that this problem actually began with collapsing rates of growth of the physical economy back approximately in 1971 when the floating exchange rate system was introduced internationally. The fixed exchange rate system of Bretton Woods established by Franklin Delano Roosevelt was scuttled, and that opened the doors to a tidal wave of speculation, which today has created a bubble of derivatives, which is anywhere between one and a half and two quadrillion dollars. Now, uh, what's happened, as you can see on the second uh, version of this triple curve, is that on top of this ongoing collapse, what we have had is a ratchet down with a pandemic, which caused terrible crisis throughout the world. On top of that, a further ratchet down by the intentional deindustrialization uh, instituted coming off the COP26 meeting and the environmentalist program generally internationally. And then now a third ratchet down of a dramatic sort with these sanctions which have been put in place internationally. So since 1971, when the floating exchange rate system was established, that was the beginning of the end of what in fact was the Glass-Steagall system internationally, which separated productive uses of currency and credit from speculative activities. On the international scale, we're talking about the fixed exchange rate system. Within the United States, it's Glass-Steagall. It's the same thing in terms of economic fundamentals. Now, let me turn to the question of how do we solve this problem, because I think that's really where our attention and our discussion must focus. We have put together a program uh, to address this crisis globally, to create a new economic architecture premised on LaRouche's basic economic policy centered around his four laws. Now, the thing that you start with, and you always have to start with this, is the physical economy. Not financial aspects, but the physical economy. If you look at the uh, combination of Russia, India, and China, what Primakov called the strategic triangle. You can see that these three nations alone, all of whom are being attacked and destroyed by the uh, speculative assaults from London and from Washington and the political assaults and the military assaults as well. But these three nations combined have 38% of the world's population. They produce 42% of the wheat, 66% of the steel, uh, of the new nuclear plants being built, 45%. It's not like they could function in an autarkical fashion, but they have a very good basis, breaking with the speculative system and establishing, and this is our second point a, of our uh, proposal, a common currency beginning among these nations, which would establish a fixed exchange rate among them and with an absolute barrier between them and the speculative dollar system. Now, there has been much discussion already in financial circles, 
internationally of how you would do this. Would it be backed by gold, by current, by commodities, by what? The key thing that makes a currency worth something is if it is backed by actual credit, which is issued in a productive direction. And I'd like to quote for you what Lyndon LaRouche said about this in a June 29, 2005 seminar in Berlin. He said, the popular conception of money by governments and by leading institutions is insane by the standards of the effect of the concept and the way it's applied. The value of money should be determined by a scientific principle, not an accounting principle. And the scientific principle is, what is a physically defensible determination of the will of governments and the ability of governments to perform in creating credit over the long term for the development of their economies and their productivities? Knowledge of the determination and competence of the government to create value, to create wealth, and to have sufficient wealth to repay the debt you are creating in a timely fashion. This is a physical question, not an accounting question. And I think this is essential to the task of putting together such a common block and a currency to back it up in terms of its physical economic capabilities. Third is nations that are part of this salvaging of the physical economies by breaking with the sinking Titanic have to establish national currencies with fixed exchange rates, not a floating exchange rate, which opens the door to speculation with a dollar, and to defend that with exchange controls. Use that to establish Hamiltonian credit issued towards productive activities of the exactly the sort that Lyndon LaRouche was just describing. The need for such a complete uh, wall between the speculative economy and the productive economy is at the heart of a Glass-Steagall type of arrangement. With that in place as a building block or a starting point, we then have the requirement of those three RIC nations, which remember were the, uh, the start of the brick after the RIC, and then the BRICS. They should expand by lending capital for productive activities for third world development, the developing sector. And most nations of the developing sector will be very happy to join such an arrangement because they're being killed and literally killed by the policies of the sinking, self-destructing transatlantic financial system. It's extremely important as a fifth point for this type of a new arrangement to be offered to the United States and to the nations of Europe. This is what Lyndon LaRouche had always proposed, a four power agreement of Russia, India, China, and the United States, where around proposals such as the Belt and Road Initiative of China the offer is made to the United States and to Europe to join that activity, which of course will benefit not Wall Street, not the city of London, but it will benefit the population and the industry of that entire region. It's not such a huge change for the United States. It means only going back to the principles of Alexander Hamilton on which our American system of political economy was in fact founded. And finally, in six, pose that this new orientation, this approach of East-West cooperation for development, for win-win development, be applied to Ukraine, the hardest problem perhaps on the planet. Ukraine has been destroyed by 30 years of liberal economic policy, not just by the war. And what this has meant is a collapse of its population, 
by a third, a collapse of its labor force, a collapse of its manufacturing labor force by 25%. And this in an economy which had been one of the most advanced industrial developed with high technology, aerospace and other capabilities, nuclear energy and so on. And of course, the famous black earth providing for agricultural capabilities. These all must be rebuilt and it must be rebuilt with joint cooperation between East and West. And in that fashion, Ukraine will become not the trigger for a potential thermonuclear war, but a reorganization around a Westphalian principle of the benefit of the other being the basis for resolving the problems of the entire planet. We must take on the Ukraine challenge, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Our next speaker, and this is the, the second panel on the economy of the Schiller Institute Conference, if you're just joining us. Our second speaker will be Professor Justin Yifu Lin, who's the Dean of the Institute of New Structural Economics, the Dean of the Institute of South-South Cooperation and Development, and the Honorary Dean of the School of National Development at Peking University. His topic will be China's Belt and Road Initiative the rationale and likely impact. Dr. Lin, welcome to the conference. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a very timely conference in a very challenging time of the world. And my honor to be part of the panel and uh, to share with you my own understanding about why China proposed the Bear and Road Initiative and what's the likely impact this new initiative will bring to the world. The reason why China proposed the Bear and Road Initiative, I think it's because China wants to be a responsible stakeholders in the world. Because currently China is the second largest economy in the world measured by market exchange rate. But if we measure by purchasing power parity, China is the largest economy in the world. And China is also the largest trading country in the world. And recently, China will be a high-income country. So like other major countries in the world, China should make a contribution to the development of the world, to the development of other countries, like the advanced country, the US, the European country, Japan, they all do the same. And then certainly there's one way for China to make a contribution through the existing global development cooperation architectures. That is to join the IMF, the World Bank, and to increase China's contribution. That was initially China intended to do. So in 2009, at that time, President Hu Jintao reached an agreement with President Obama for China 
to increase its contribution to IMF, to the World Bank, and certainly China should also increase its voting power in those institutions. There was an agreement, but unfortunately, the, the agreement was blocked by the U.S. Congress, so it could not be implemented. And also, even China can increase its contribution through the existing framework. Is that desirable? Maybe questionable. Because after the Second World War, the advanced country already contributed generously 4.6 trillion US dollars, measured by 2007 US dollars purchasing power to help the developing country to achieve their development. But so far, among about 200 developing economies in the world, only two moved from low income to high income. One was South Korea, the other one was Taiwan, China. And in 1960s, there were 101 major income economies in the world. By the time of 2008, when I became the chief economist and the senior vice president of the World Bank, only 13 of them moved from the middle income to high income. And among those 13, eight were European countries surrounding Western Europe. There was Portugal, Spain, and Greece. Their income gap with the advanced countries were very small to begin with, or oil producing countries. The other five were Japan and four small Eastern, uh, East Asian dragons, like Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong and Singapore. So from this statistic we can see, even with the general support from the advanced country, most developing country in Latin America, in South Asia, in Africa, were trapped in low income or middle income status. They did not improve much. And so if China joined the existing architecture, by increasing more money support to that, the result is very likely to be similar. And why the advanced country generously provides so much money, but we cannot get the result of development of reducing poverty, elimination, hungers. I think it was because most of the support from the advanced country today were used in the humanitarian area like education health. Certainly no one can say those areas were not important. Well, in the governance, democracy, transparency, no one can argue against those are important. However, those kind of support could not create jobs, could not contribute to the growth because they were not targeting the bottleneck of job creation, the bottleneck 
of the growth in the developing country today. And according to the Chinese experiences, we have one saying, if you want to get rich, if the country wants to get rich, build the roads first. We improve the infrastructure first. Because if you can improve the infrastructure, then you can adopt modern technology. And if you improve the infrastructure, you can have industrial aggregation and so on. And that was the reason why in 2013, President Xi Jinping, when he visited Kazakhstan in August, he proposed the Shirk Row uh, Economic Belt Initiative. And in October, the same year, he participated in Asian Summit, ASEAN Summit in Indonesia. He proposed 21st century maritime Shirk Row and use infrastructure connectivity as a way for the Global Development Corporation to improve the infrastructure in the developing country as a way to help the development in the developing country. And for this purpose, China proposed to set up the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And uh, it had 57 founding member countries. And now it had 104 member countries. And in terms of member countries, it only next to the World Bank. So the second largest development, multilateral development institutions. And so far, also 147 countries and 32 international organizations sign cooperation agreement with China to implement this shared, this general initiative. I think it will receive because every country see the needs of releasing the infrastructure bottleneck for the development in their country. And if this initiative can be implemented, I think it's going to be changing the world. Because we all know the 197 member countries of the UN reached an agreement of 2030 agenda. That is the sustainable development goals. And we all know there are 17 goals. Every goal are very important. Zero poverty, zero hunger, good health, and so on. They are all desirable. But how to achieve that? Goal eight, decent job will be essential. If you give decent job to the people, they will have income. Certainly they are not poor. They will buy food, they will no hunger, they will take care of themselves, they will be good health. But how to, devote, how to deliver the decent job to the people? You need to have industrialization, you need to have a technological innovation, but to make industrialization possible, technological innovation, adopting the modern technology possible, you need to have the infrastructure. That's the goal nine of the SDG. And the bear and a role initiative will contribute to the improvement of the infrastructure. So allow the country to have modernization, industrialization, 
and that will bring the decent job to the people. And with the decent job, as I said, then they will have no hunger, no poverty, good health. So I think if we work together to use the VRO initiative as a new global development cooperation framework, a world free of poverty will be possible. So let me stop here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for that, Professor Lin. And I think that's something that fits in with the work that Helga Zeppelarouche and the Schiller Institute have been fighting for for the, uh, a long period of time, going back to even before 2013. Uh, now, our next speaker is Saeed Nakfi, an Indian journalist, television commentator, and interviewer. And he'll be speaking on an important topic, media role and responsibility. And uh, Mr. Nakfi, we just, since you weren't on before when I mentioned this, we're trying to limit the uh, presentations to 10 minutes, so we have plenty of time for uh, discussion afterwards. So please go ahead and tell us what you have to say. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. In fact, I'm both embarrassed and flattered by being in the company of this august uh, galaxy of professors and scholars, because these journalists are everything by start and nothing long. We are uh, within the course of one revolving moon, chimist, fiddler, statesman, and buffoon. So we are, but I qualify to intervene and take part in this very, very important conference uh, because uh, while my scholar friends have been working and poring over documents, I have traveled to 110 countries, 110 countries, either with my cameraman or with my notepad and my pencil. So I, uh, that qualifies me to, I think, to some extent, uh, though not entirely. Uh, I'm an Indian journalist. Time was when we thought we had something resembling a liberal press. We, uh, let me begin with something slightly different. Cullus, the Greek tragedian, the master of Greek tragedy, 400 BC or so. He was also a warrior. In those days, people had these various definitions. And he said something. He said when war breaks out, the first casualty is the truth. I don't think you need, you, I'm, uh, this is a rocket science that I'm revealing to you. Uh, my good friend, the late Philip Knightley, wrote a book, a masterly catalog of war correspondence called The First Casualty. The first casualty being the truth. Let me begin my narrative with the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the first imprimatur, a successful system, on a defeated system was the Operation Desert Storm. People don't realize it. It was a much more important operation in terms of the information order than even the occupation of Iraq, which took place in 2003. Why? Because my friend Peter Arnett from the terrace of Al Rashid Hotel of Baghdad inaugurated something 
that you and I and generation had never seen. He brought a war live into our drawing rooms. Peter, CNN. And I remember uh, Dick Cheney, who was then, then the defense secretary. He became uh, vice president later for, for the occupation of Iraq. He said, oh, I've been seeing if the war is going very well. I've just seen it on CNN. And then Hosni Mubarak, it became an advertising advertisement for CNN. Oh, the war is going well. I've seen it on CNN. Now that war had the following effect. It pulverized Saddam Hussein. The victorious West had put its imprimatur not only on victory over the Soviet Union, but generally, now we are here. We are the sole superpower, and this is our imprimatur. That one telecast of Peter's, Peter Arnett's, divided the world into two sets of audiences, the victorious West and the pulverized, defeated, humiliated Muslim world again. Where we stood in India is still a toss-up. And many societies, it's, it's a little googly I'm tossing at you. Now, this went on. And then you had the two intifadas, and then the Bosnian War, and the Bosnian War, Europe said no. The, even though everybody saw daily the, the uh, brutalization of the Bosnians, Europe would not intervene because if we intervene on one side, we have come together so that we don't quarrel. If we come together, if we come on the side of, say, the Serbs, the Serbs are with the Allies. Germany comes on the side of Croatia. Croatia was with the Axis. So we will not intervene. Genshaw did something. He went and recognized Croatia ahead. But that set the cat among the pigeons. Meanwhile, and I, I, why I'm saying this, uh, it is not recollection of pouring on documents. I was there. I was in Zagreb. And Cardinal Kukaric of Zagreb Cathedral, he had been to Rome and uh, met the Pope, completely misunderstood. And here you had, oh, the access is coming, the access is coming. So one set this news uh, media that had been created, it had its fallout in the regions. We in the subcontinent of India, we had our own copycat media. Don't forget that when the Soviet Union collapsed is precisely the moment when Indian economic liberalization began. Before that period, we had one channel called Doordarshan, which was a little bit like, like a state-run state -run television. There was no multiple channels in it. Advertising, burgeoning an economy, demanded advertising space and a multiple scores of channels grew up. But these channels 
has come on behalf of industry, the captains of industry, the corporate world. In other words, if they played up the problems of the people, social welfare, poverty, houses, land, drinking water, then people would stand up. We didn't want to agitate the people. We went, the business must have its advertising, the middle class must be created by the kind of advertising that the middle class right likes. And so you had a, a, a society which has gone not the liberal way. It has not gone the liberal way at all. Anyone who's keeping a steady gaze on India, that is what happened here. It was the media. And now, since the time is limited, let me tell you, when I entered the portals of a paper called The Statesman in my first innings as a young journalist in 19, in the late 60s, the line was, you know, the newspaper Statesman in those days was owned 12 different uh, British companies. The whole hangover from the colonies was still there. The colonial system was, was retreating, but it had left behind some good institutions. And one of them was the statesman. It was a great newspaper. And I have the privilege of having been groomed there. Now, what was the line? These 12 companies, they had a board of trustees, board of governors and a board of trustees. Board of trustees gave the editor a line, the, the policy, and for the year, neither the market, nor the government, nor the proprietors ever bothered the editor. The editor, it was, we, it was called, we support the establishment on a, a critical support to the establishment on an issue-by-issue issue basis. In other words, in a democracy, people bring a government into being. Our job is not to quarrel with people's verdicts, but to see on behalf of the people that the government functions, whether it is the BJP, fascist, communist, ultra-left. Ultra-right was not our business. We were there to to support people's verdict on an issue-by-issue issue basis. That system in India got broken during the Mrs. Gandhi's emergency. Mrs. Gandhi's emergency disbanded the press. And the, 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 there grew two bodies, those who hated Mrs. Gandhi and those who hated those who hated Mrs. Gandhi. That has continued to this day. In the global arena, the, the Soviet and the, uh, the so-called progressives and the capitalists, what, what should have been celebrated globally as the victory of democracy, of human rights, and of, of good governance was celebrated. These words were never mentioned then. It was celebrated as a victory of the market. Rampaging capitalism is what had won. And for that, the 
price is being paid regionally and everywhere. Now, at the moment, we are having, with this, the media, what happens? I quoted Iskelos. When war breaks out, so this Americans have been, Trump asked Carter, sir, the Chinese are going ahead. What should we do? Carter turned back and said, look, since 1979, the Chinese have not been at war. They had that war with Vietnam, if you remember, and I covered that war. Now, after that, we, said Carter, have never stopped being at war. And our media, therefore, has never stopped being a war media. And therefore, one of the great tragedies of our time is the singular collapse of the credibility of the Western media. Yes, we watched the tragedy of Bucha with misty eyes. Yes, we watch what is going on in Ukraine. But the question remains at the back of our mind. Is this the whole truth? It is unlike my life. When my life and Walter Cronkite went and exposed the whole thing. And it changed the trend of the Vietnam War. Today, there is a doubt on Bucha. Those, there are those who want to believe it. There are those who want to suspect what is being reported. There is this division. And on what is in the bargain is the new global order. Where is the media in all of this? We have to think very deeply on that one. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. Nakia. I think that was a very interesting um, brief walk, walk through history to give people a sense of why the media has come to where it is. Our, our next speaker is Dr. George Koo, the retired business consultant, the chairman of Burlingame Foundation. And his topic is U.S. sanctions on Russia and China are suicide for the dollar. Dr. Koo? Hello, everybody. My name is George Koo. I'm a retired international business advisor, and I write occasionally for Asia Times. My uh, latest op-ed posted earlier this week pointed out that we are facing some consequential blowbacks from the Ukraine war, and that those blowbacks could threaten our very existence um, on Earth. Now. I was referring to the fact that Washington seems to feel that they can win a nuclear showdown with Russia and the, the neoconservatives that's running the Biden uh, administration uh, actually think that, that is winnable and that is scary, folks. I'm assuming that there will be other speakers that will address this issue and an important one in the Q&A. For the amount of time allowed to me, I want to address um, why the self-inflected injury by the Biden administration will spell the demise of the American dollar. First of all, American policy is based on a very simple playbook. If you don't do what we ask you, we will sanction you beyond the level of pain that you can stand. In case of Russia, U.S. started out by freezing Russian reserve to the tune of 300 billion, France, froze about 22 billion euros. The U.S. and 
UK uh, confiscated the gold on deposit at um, in London and New York. Even other allies, even Switzerland, have joined in to add to the pain, Russia's pain. But when Russia didn't give up and didn't cry uncle, Biden decided to add more pressure by ordering the seizure of personal property and real estate in the, in the U.S. held by selected oligarchs, including uh, especially those that are known to be close to Putin. At the same time, Biden kicked Russia off SWIFT, the international financial transfer system. SWIFT stands for, by the way, Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. In effect, Biden has taken Russia off global commerce. Many experts have pointed out what Biden has done is unprecedented in modern history. In one stroke, any country can see that if they incur the displeasure of the U.S., they can be wiped out their reserve and personal uh, assets taken and confiscated by the U.S. Instead of acting like an honorable fiduciary, the U.S. is acting like gangsters and bullies. Biden has put the full faith and credit of the United States in serious doubt. In, in order for Biden to exert maximum impact on Russia, the U.S. needs most, if not everybody of the, in the world to join the sanction and stop doing business with Russia. So far, other than U.S., Canada, and the EU, EU countries, not even Mexico, by the way, None of 53 African countries have joined the sanction. None of the 33 Latin American countries have. None of 22 Middle East countries have. Only three, Japan, three of the 48 countries in Asia, namely Japan, South Korea, and Singapore, have. Australia and New Zealand are among the island countries that, are, that have joined the sanction. Major countries with large populations and purchasing power such as Brazil, India, China, have not stopped doing business with Russia and thus keep the Russian economy going. Apparently, the White House was caught unprepared when Putin announced that they, he, Russia will only accept ruble for payment for their natural gas and oil to, to quote, unfriendly countries. And then he later, he also added, say, we'll take gold as well at 500 rubles to a gram. This is especially, especially painful for EU because they depend on Russia for 40% of their natural gas supply. So, and the natural gas is not merely to heat homes, which is important until the winter is over, but also it's a major feedstock for the petrochemical industry in Europe. So EU countries can cry foul, protest, and refuse to pay, but Putin says, well, that's fine, no ruble, no gas. Russia also has a rupee to ruble deal going with India with a, with a favorable pricing, bargain pricing for India. 
even before the war in Ukraine, countries have been minimizing or reducing their exposure to the dollar anyway. Russia has a long-term contract with China to be settled in renminbi. Saudi Arabia also has a long-term deal with China for their oil based on the renminbi or the yuan. China has stopped agreement with 40 some countries in which both countries agree to settle their deals, their trade in local currency and avoid having to hold on dollars. Russia is also a large exporter of grain, agricultural products, and chemical fertilizer. Putin is likely to add those to ruble-only deals. So it will be a matter of time when EU countries will decide that siding with U.S. is too expensive, too painful uh, in exchange for the inflationary shortages that they will experience. Bulgaria, Hungary, uh, so far uh, among the EU countries that have already caved in. Ukraine, by the way, is also a supplier of important food and agricultural products. And their inability to produce will also affect the, not only the EU, but the worldwide problem in terms of starvation, shortages, and inflation. The exchange rate of the ruble plummeted when the sanctions were first announced. But rubles, but uh, Putin's counter in pegging the ruble to real assets has, me- has meant that the ruble has bounced back to the pre-war level. So the rest of the world are, are, can see all this and has to decide whether holding the ruble pegged to real assets is better or the dollar backed by the heretofore sacrosanct full faith and credit of Washington. The American public may not fully appreciate that one consequential blowback is the worldwide lost confidence on the dollar, which is not pegged to any real assets or gold. By acting unilaterally, the American dollar is no longer a safe place for anybody's foreign reserve or tycoon's private wealth. As a result, increasingly, the dollar is not going to be worth the paper it's printed on, and history will inch will show when the U.S. economy collapses that uh, this is attributable to Biden's folly. The U.S. knows only one diplomatic approach, which is to threaten sanction. And they may try it on China because so far what Blinken's message and his colleagues to China is join our sanctions, stop doing business with Russia or else. How will China react to the threat? China is the leading trading partner for over 120 countries, virtually the entire world. China has become the factory of of the world and makes products that everybody needs and wants to buy, and that includes the United States. So China is not going to be intimidated by the threat of sanction. If If Biden were to insist on economic sanctions on China, 
the blowback will hurt the American consumer. Made in America factories to replace China's factories will talk, take a very long time. In the meantime, American consumers will face, will face inflation and scarcity. It's becoming increasingly apparent that the U.S. speaks loudly but carries a shriveled stick. It's just not scary anymore. In, att- in attempting to decouple from China, the U.S. will find itself standing alone and holding a dollar that nobody else wants to hold on to anymore. Thank you. Dr. Ku, thanks for that. It's, it's important that these truths get out there. Uh, we now have two contributions from the nation of Colombia, uh, both from trade union leaders. One is Fraidike Gaitan, who's the president of the CTU Workers' Confederation of Colombia, and he'll be speaking on the international labor organization Tripartism, the key approach for a stable and lasting global peace. And he'll, he'll be followed by Pedro Rubio, another trade union leader from Colombia and a longtime associate of Lyndon LaRouche. His topic is South America and the new development architecture. Reciban un cordial saludo de la Confederación Central Unión Sindical Colombiana de Trabajo, CTUSTRA. Greetings from the CTU USCTRA Workers Confederation of Colombia. It is very important for Colombia and Latin America to pay attention to everything that is going on at this global juncture. We've lived through a global pandemic and the Ukraine-Russia issue, which affects the whole world. This forces us to think about what the policy agenda is going to be moving forward. We should speak of a new world order and we should consider whether or not human beings are going to continue to be at the center of events and whether or not human beings are the most important thing for those centers of thought, such as the centers of power, where we see that the harm done to human dignity and to life itself has reached a serious and enormous crossroads, such that it could easily be replaced by artificial intelligence. It's no longer a matter of the thinkers of some economic theoreticians where man uses man, where man is enslaved, and then he is freed and goes on to the concept of the proletariat and evolves to the concept of the new world of labor. So we all have to ask ourselves the question, are human beings really at this time at the center of the thinking of those think tanks and centers of power? We think that they should be. The other important issue is to look at the historic evolution of the concept of the world of labor and the global conflicts that have occurred throughout history. The Treaty of Westphalia is one key reference point to take into account, as is the Versailles Treaty, despite the disruptions and some deviations that have been found in them. But we believe that in the case of the Versailles Treaty, as a labor confederation established on the basis of the thinking of the International Labor Organization, or ILO, which was created as part of Versailles, that tripartism is necessary if we are going to speak of a stable and lasting peace. Another very important matter we have to keep in mind is the role of the ILO and the UN. If we want the development of nations to be symmetrical, we necessarily have to see if these two organizations are valid or not. 
For us, the ILO is valid, both because it is and has a democratic sense of participation because of its three electoral colleges, a vote by the state through the government, a vote by workers, and a vote by employers. The UN has a disruption, which is its Security Council. Only some have achieved the armed power of having nuclear bombs and other kinds of weapons of mass destruction, which allow them to be there. But there is no consensus, no democratic decision-making by all nations. That generates the asymmetries that we find today. It's important to consider that in these new architectures, we have to find an equilibrium to furthermore be able to speak of global social justice. Policy agenda built by blocks and that can't mean going back to unipolarity nor to bipolarity. We should be talking about a minimum of five blocks, and Latin America should play a strong role among them. We see the example that Africa, which has used the tripartite system, today leads the International Labor Organization. Entonces, pues, llamamos a este ejercicio que se siga fortaleciendo el diálogo social entre las naciones. So we call for that to be done to keep strengthening social dialogue among nations. It is not easy to interpret the tensions because there are tensions between some agendas and others, and that's what we are seeing in that conflict. Despite the fact that some want to reduce it to the issue of Ukraine and Russia, it is global tension. So for the CTU Ustrab Confederation, it's important to return to the tripartite mechanism to consider the deformation that the UN has in its Security Council and other asymmetrical situations such as the intervention of non-governmental organizations or NGOs in the ILO.